Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, it's Thursday, the 7th of October. I'm Nadia Swart, and you're listening to the Biz News Power Hour. On this evening's show, Linda van Tilburg speaks to Dr. Lawrence McChrystal, the chairman of COFESA, about the large-scale unemployment in the country and the immediate solutions to this problem, which COFESA has submitted to President Ramaphosa. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts speaks to economist Mike Schussler about the state of the South African manufacturing industry, which Schussler states has gone nowhere in the last decade. Justin also gets investment insights from Sean Pesh, the founder of Ranmore Fund Management. And then, as usual, we'll get global investment insights from our partners at the Financial Times. But first, here are your news headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Judge Neves, and you are the most accessed stories on the Biz News platforms. On our website, biznews.com, Enoch Godongwana and Reform. That's a piece by Jonathan Katznell and Buchen. From our partners at the Wall Street Journal, Tougher tech laws to follow after Facebook whistleblower's testimony. And lastly, brutally honest Rob Hersop is the hero we all deserve. That's a piece by Sebastian Chatov. On Biz News TV, on YouTube, Investment Insights with Magnus Haystick, Paulo Sullivan on Digital Vibes, and Yesterday's Flash Briefing are our most popular videos. On Biz News Radio on Spotify, our most popular podcasts include Yesterday's Power Hour, Magnus Haystack, Netflix is a Phenomenal Story, and Manta CEO Paul Gardner discussing the importance of the UK to South Africa's tourism industry. I'm Judge Neves for Biz News. I'm Nadia Swart, and here are your news headlines. The World Bank said South Africa, which ranks among the world's top 10 spenders on social assistance, could consider a range of reforms to its 156 billion rand annual welfare program to make it more cost-effective while expanding support for the unemployed. While more than 18 million South Africans receive welfare payments and almost two-thirds benefit directly or indirectly from the grants, only child support old-age pensions and disability payments are handed out to people who haven't paid into a separate unemployment insurance system. The country could consider a job seekers grant, community works programs, or differentiating child support payments so that the poorest families get additional help, the World Bank said in a report. The new subsea Equiano cable linking Africa and Europe will significantly decrease internet costs and triple internet speeds in South Africa, says Google. In an online briefing, Google Africa Managing Director Nitin Gajria said the company is making steady progress in constructing the cable, with branches landing in Nigeria, Namibia, St. Helena and South Africa. Equiano will provide approximately 20 times more network capacity than the last cable built to serve South Africa, he said. This will lead to a 21% drop in internet prices, as well as five-fold internet speed and almost triple in South Africa. South Africa's sugar industry is in talks with the government over a potential subsidy that could see it convert more than a third of its annual output into biofuel, according to a group representing companies in the sector. Currently, 800,000 tonnes of the industry's annual output of 2.1 million tonnes is being exported at a loss, according to the South African Sugar Association. The discussions follow the signing of the so-called Sugar Master Plan by the government, farmers industrial users and retailers in the 16 billion rand industry. The plan seeks to ease a crisis caused by a flood of cheap imports, much of those from neighbouring Eswatini, and a tax on sugar-sweetened drinks that lower demand from beverage makers. And now it's over to my colleague Justin for the market report. 
The JSE All Share Index was up at 64,800. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 88 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 27 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 43 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,762 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is trading at $81 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back a touch over 800,000 rand. The financial news, paper and packaging group Mondi says underlying core profit rose more than a quarter in the three months ending September with high input costs passed on to customers. The world's largest producer of craft paper has benefited from robust e-commerce activity during COVID-19, increased demand for more environmentally friendly products and having large and stable supplies. The group said on Thursday, sustained demand for key products helped it grow core profit in the third quarter, despite it facing high input costs, including energy, transport, and chemicals. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, October 7th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Gas prices were on a roller coaster yesterday, and political leaders weighed in on the energy crisis. General Motors is banking on batteries and announced plans to double revenues by the end of the decade. Plus, the Pandora Papers are the latest leak of documents showing how the world's wealthy hide their money. We'll ask what impact there's been since the first trove of papers came out. The understanding of tax avoidance has really shifted over the past decade so that now most people feel it's the wrong thing to do, it's a bad thing to do. Whereas in previous times, you know, it was seen as something that was legal and so why shouldn't I do it? I'm Mark Filipino and here's the news you need. It was the most volatile and unpredictable day that many in the industry will ever witness. That's how one industry analyst described trading in the gas market yesterday. At one point, UK and European natural gas prices shot up and were trading at close to 10 times what they were at the beginning of the year. Prices then fell after Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, hinted that the country's gas exporter, Gazprom, may increase supplies to help Europe avoid a full-blown crisis. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm floated the idea of releasing crude oil from the government's strategic petroleum reserve to ease the surge in the price of gasoline in the U.S. The EU's energy commissioner was blunt about the limits of what the bloc could do. Kadri Simpson admitted Brussels was powerless to prevent surging gas prices that are affecting consumers across Europe. She told the FT that Brussels couldn't provide short-term fixes but would encourage governments to offer targeted support, like cutting energy taxes. General Motors CEO Mary Barra announced ambitious plans yesterday to double its revenues by 2030 while increasing profit margins, all while shifting from gas to electric-powered vehicles. GM plans to use common parts and its own battery to produce a range of electric vehicles. It'll also try to boost profits by selling subscriptions for services like car insurance and its own hands-free driving technology. So they're thinking they're going to do high volume in EV by having up to 30 vehicles by 2025 that appeal to all segments of the heart of the auto market in the United States. That's the FT's Claire Bushy. She covers the auto industry. It's a key moment because GM had a black eye with the Chevrolet Bolt because they were catching on fire. When you have to tell your customers that eh, they probably shouldn't park in their garage because it might burn their house down, that's problematic to say the least. So GM really needed to explain to people what they were doing, and how it was going to work. That's the FT's Claire Bushy. We've had the Panama Papers, then the Paradise Papers, and this past Sunday, another massive leak of documents detailing the offshore financial dealings of the world's wealthy. It's the Pandora Papers, a staggering 12 million documents with more revelations about tax evasion and hidden financial dealings. To talk about what impact these leaks are having, I'm joined by the FT's global tax correspondent, Emma Adjimong. Thanks for coming on the show, Emma. Thanks for having me. So, Emma, the way that I understand it is the Pandora Papers 
actually differ from the Panama and Paradise Papers. Why is that the case? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Probably what is different is that so far for the Pandora Papers, we haven't seen allegations of tax evasion. There might be some indication of potentially other wrongdoing or potentially even you know corruption, money laundering. But it's interesting to note that compared to both the Panama Papers, which focus very much on on tax evasion, which is a crime, it's fraud, and the Paradise Papers that focused or on aggressive avoidance, tax avoidance. These papers so far have been showing the ways in which the people who are using offshore arrangements have been using them kind of to protect their own privacy and to, in some cases, hide what's going on from potentially their, their own publics. In terms of why, one factor I think is that there has been more focus by governments and by tax authorities to try and close the net on people behaving secretly. But also there's the deterrence effect of these leaks. So when the Panama Papers came out, if you were somebody who was named and then was hugely costly, embarrassing, lots of negative press as a result from it. So I think a lot of companies and individuals have felt that this isn't something they really want to be attached to. So what have we seen at an international level to fix the things these papers have shed a light on? There have been you know, lots of different efforts, both at national level and at international level. So, I mean, nationally, different countries have done different things to try and tighten up on the ways in which people are using these offshore assets. For example, there's been increase in the use of registers to get some more information about people who are behind some of these offshore arrangements. But that varies country by country. Internationally, there's been quite a bit of effort to share information between tax authorities. Basically, it's called the Common Reporting Standard. If somebody, say, um, a British citizen is it's doing something in Singapore, that's something that's going to be shared between the two tax authorities. So there has been a big increase in trying to make sure that there's less secrecy, there's more transparency. Of course, there's also the focus on trying to get corporates and in particular digital companies and some of the biggest companies in the world to pay more tax where they do business and to make sure that there is a global minimum in terms of a corporate tax rate. Right. And actually, the OECD is going to hold talks on the global tax rate this week. Um, Another thing that came out of these Pandora Papers is that some U.S. states like South Dakota and President Joe Biden's home state of Delaware have become leaders in peddling financial secrecy. What does this mean for the White House, especially since Biden has said he wants to be a leader in clamping down on tax havens? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that it's not necessarily going to be that easy for Joe Biden at the federal level to change this because the states have their own decision-making abilities about how they run their affairs to some degree. But what these Pandora Papers have really done is shine a spotlight on these states such as South Dakota, um, Nevada, Delaware, how much um, money is actually going into them and also from people outside the US. So I, I don't think it's a problem or an issue that can be kind of swept under the carpet anymore. And it will be interesting to see where it goes. Emma Adjumong is the FT's global tax correspondent. Before we go, the folks behind Panera Bread, Pret-a-Manger, and Krispy Kreme want to appeal to your four-legged friends, or rather, humans love for their four-legged friends, and maybe even their two-winged friends. European investment group JAB Holding plans to raise a $5 billion fund to extend its deal-making in the pet sector. The group's been raising funds from its existing network of roughly 120 investors, according to two FT sources. JAB already has big investments in veterinary care. Now it wants to move into other pet services like insurance and medical equipment. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Randmore Fund Management founder, Sean Pesh. Sean, your tweets are always a good conversation starter. Your latest one is about a share buyback gone wrong. We've seen a few of those on the JSC lately. Naspers process as well, Sabanya. What's your takes on buybacks as a whole? 
So, Justin, look, I think if, if the buybacks at the right price are an excellent way of returning capital to shareholders. Um, one of the points I've raised previously is that for many shareholders, certainly internationally, you suffer from withholdings tax. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, if you can buy back your shares in your company at, at 10, 12 times earnings, that's like investing at 8% return. And, and, you know, that's attractive uh, in this day and age. So the key thing is what price they buy back. Um, and, and, there's, and if you just can't, you know, these tech companies buying back all their shares, Facebook spent $18 billion buying back shares over the last year, I think I'm right in saying, or six months. Um, but most of that has been from share from their employees who have exercised share options. And so I'm not in favor of that. Um, but if it's a real reduction in shares, and I think it's, a, it's at the right price, it makes a lot of sense. I was chatting to Stephen Nathan, and he believes that buybacks are fraught with conflicts of interest due to parts of executive remuneration being tied to share schemes, etc. Would you tend to agree? I think that's right. I think what they also companies try and do is they hand over their buyback program to a broker, so who is completely separated. It's a it's a real problem if the CFO is involved and they know what the numbers are doing and they're you know changing their buyback program accordingly. Um, but uh, if you've handed over to an independent party, then let them get on and do it. I think that's a good thing. I mean, one company, for example, Hewlett Packard, has bought back about four percent of its shares in issue in each of the last couple of quarters and are doing so now. That's a, that's a substantial buyback um, and that can really move the needle. Netflix has been climbing whilst other tech companies have been down. This is on the back of one of its new releases, a Korean series called Squid Game, which is on its way to becoming Netflix's most popular or viewed show rather. Is this something you follow at all? These guys tend to be at the forefront of forward thinking and innovation time and time again. They have done a remarkable job. Uh, Netflix certainly have. And, you know, if you think about their roots and just changing the business, I mean, they started off just posting video games rather than oh, video games, movies rather than the stores. And then they, they pivoted when they saw streaming take hold. I haven't actually watched Squid Game. Um, I have seen it pop up on the odd tweet. So, yeah, I'll have to watch it. But it's, it's not a company we're invested in, no. In your opinion, Sean, what's the number one concern or threat in the markets at the moment? So, so just now, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about that because I've just issued our fact sheet. And I think there are really three concerns. The first is that inflation isn't transitory and will stay higher for longer. And we're seeing more and more companies coming out and saying this. I mean, just in the last few days, we had Costco saying that inflationary factors abound. You know, PepsiCo came out with results the other day. They said that one of the issues, and I've spoken about this before, and I think in one of my LinkedIn or, or tweets, is that a lot of these consumer product companies have been hedged, and those hedges are now rolling off. And so people have been insulated from these inflationary shocks up until this point. But now that these hedges have rolled off, um, and they're having to you know, re-hedge at higher prices, those prices are coming through. And so consumers are going to see quite an increase, I think, in foodstuffs. And so... For central bankers to say these are transitory and that you know, lumber price and used car prices have fallen um, and it's now over, it's just starting. I mean, only recently you've seen the goings on in the natural gas prices over here, the electricity prices in the UK, uh, coal price internationally. You know, so there's lots of inflationary factors. It's not one or two things. It's everywhere. It's across the, it's across the board. And so that is just starting. Um, so I think that's, um, you know, that's one of the factors. The second factor is supply chains. And they're going to continue to disrupt markets. Um, you know, just yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before, we've seen in China's technology, what well, main technology province, one of Apple's suppliers saying they're going to be affected. And so people think the tech companies are insulated. But I'd argue, well, what is Amazon other than a, an Amazon Web Services plus a supply chain company? And so they're not going to be insulated. And these results are going to be very very interesting in, in terms of showing that, I think. Um, and then I think the third thing is just changing regulation. You've seen what's happened in Facebook in the last couple of days. We've seen changes in China and, and the tech giants. Um, so Facebook's under the, under the microscope, as is Al Alphabet. And, and I think those are, those are the three things. And, you know, so I think there's lots to keep investors busy right now. And we're coming up to earnings season. Um, you know, quarter has just finished in the US. And so in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see lots of companies coming out. And those are going to be the most pressing issues, I would argue.
Sean, from an investment perspective, the companies that can push those inflationary costs onto those customers, i.e. pricing power, is that what you place a lot of emphasis on? Definitely. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, and it's going to, you know, there's a lot of competition in that regard. So the question is brands. Will brands be able to, to put that pricing power through? Or when consumers go to the supermarkets, will they be buying the private label? And uh, so especially if consumers have got less money in their pockets because of fuel price increases, gas, electricity prices, natural gas prices over here in the UK, are they then going to be buying the fancy brands or are they going to be going for the supermarket brands? So there's uh, you know, that, those being, having pricing power right now is absolutely critical. Evergrande shares have remained suspended since the beginning of the week. Is that ominous signs that shareholders are going to lose everything or is there more to it here? I think shareholders are going to lose everything. When I, when I looked at the numbers a little while ago and I did a, a LinkedIn and a tweet, this thing is bankrupt, it's finished. And, and you know, here's an interesting stat. I was looking at it, uh, Justin. If you add up the market cap of, of what, four of the largest, three or four of the largest listed US coal companies, it basically equals the market cap of Evergrande before it got suspended, okay? So, you know, that just shows you how out of favor these energy companies have been and, uh, and how much, maybe how much further they, well, just how, they, how much further they have to run. Um, but it is quite astounding that you add up the market cap of the largest coal companies and they're basically equivalent to a bankrupt Chinese property developer before it's suspended. Lastly, I read a tweet earlier in the week about the lack of good businesses on the London, London Stock Exchange. Would you agree or disagree with the statement? Well, I mean, look, the London Stock Exchange, no, there's lots of good businesses in the London Stock Exchange. And, uh, you know, yeah, so I would argue, I actually think banks are not bad businesses, pharmaceutical companies, oil companies. I mean, here's another stat. Royal Dutch Shell has basically got the market cap of C, which is a, a technology company listed overseas. And C, even after adjusting for all sorts of things, still ends up with negative EBITDA. So, you know, you look at this and you go, well, do I want to own Royal Dutch Shell at the moment or would I rather own C? And, uh, and so I think, um, you know, if you're looking for companies that are resilient, they've got pricing power. I mean, look at banks. They don't, they're not exposed to container prices and uh, supply chain issues that many other companies mean. So in this environment, they're actually, they're actually pretty good businesses. And so, no, I disagree. I think it, it's less attractive in terms of listing a new business, you know, um, Although in the US, if you list a business, you have to report quarterly, and that's quite onerous for many companies. Um, whereas in the UK, you only have to report every six months. Um, but uh, but I would disagree with that statement. So lots of good businesses in the UK, but it has not. Be, they have not been technology focused, and that is where all the action has been in recent years. And so that's why it's lagged, and that's probably the origin of that kind of. Con- How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin O. Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is independent economist Mike Schussler. Mike, you wrote an interesting article which related to the destruction of the manufacturing sector in South Africa. Can you give us a high-level summary of what your article outlined? Yes. I, I First of all, I, I noted um, that we're back at 1969 levels in the number of people employed in manufacturing. I also noted that we actually wanted, uh, by last year, another 350,000 people working in manufacturing from the 2007 level. And I saw that we actually lost 200,000 jobs and therefore over over 500,000 short. And if it wasn't for the data adjustments that StatsSA did over time, we would have been 700,000 short. Um, so the, the job opportunities have gone. Um, I then looked at the output, for example, uh, of our manufacturing compared to other countries. And we're 15% down from our 2008 high point. Whereas even the advanced economies who have seen 
their uh, manufacturing come under pressure from the emerging markets have uh, at least held their own. And, uh, you know, they, they're not uh, in a decline that we've seen. And then on the emerging market side, it's gone through the roof. And it's not just China. I looked at other countries um, from Ethiopia, Egypt, and I noted that the, the other thing is that African manufacturing is very often growing. So if we're going to blame the Chinese, then why are the Chinese not doing the same to Egypt? Because Egypt today is the king of steel in Africa. They make the most steel. If we look further, they also employ more people in manufacturing than we do, not just in volume terms, but as a percentage of the population. The same applies to Ethiopia and to a certain extent Nigeria, but I would take a little bit of a back step with Nigeria. There's a lot of oil platforms, and that might not always be their own people. But the fact of the matter is there are now three um, African countries who employ more people in manufacturing than we do. And apart from Egypt, the other two would have had far less than us in 1990. Um, Egypt, we probably overtook us a year or two or three before then. We don't have the full data on Egypt, but it was close between us and Egypt. Today, they employ twice as many people as we do. So the, the long and the short of it, we're not producing as much. We're not employing as much people. Uh, as a percentage of the world's output in manufacturing, we've gone from just under 1%, about 0.7, 0.8%, to about 0.1%. So our share has, you know, gone down. Um, let's make it, uh, uh, you know, 70%. Um, and why is that? You know, we have to ask ourselves that. And yet we've had all these plans. Uh, we have the iPad plan. Before then, we had industrialized policy and everything. We were going to fix everything. And the big question why is our high cost structure, both in terms of labor but it's not just labor. I don't want to, you know, go union bashing right now. I will uh, in a different way, but I'm saying our electricity supply is not there. Our water supply is not there. Our rates and taxes are high. Um, our rail isn't working as it should be working. Um, again, discussions earlier today, uh, it's clear that Transnet is not listening to very sane advice. Please Maintain your locomotives. We, the private sector, will help maintain them. Um, and we would rather not have the private sector involved in this sort of thing. And uh, then the train system collapses or we can't provide the service. And that's a, actually a very big scandal uh, that these things are happening all the time. So we don't have the transportation as we used to have. We don't have the electricity supply, and it's become more expensive. The same for water, same for a lot of municipal services. We see factories moving to other areas in the country because, for example, Clover uh, couldn't get uh, 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 the water and the roads and everything. In Luxembourg, we know Astral uh, Chickens or Astral Foods, they, they've got huge problems in, in uh, Stanerton. Uh, with no water supply. I mean, we've got to understand, we've got to get the basics right. And then we've got a competition commission that is on a mission, um, much more so than the Europeans, for example, in an emerging market, you know, where they think they have to throw their weight around. And then, you know, we can talk about other things, but it's also quite clear that we've got a lot more strikes. So our interruptions from all angles, are just not good for the modern economy that has to deal with just-in-time sort of manufacturing, that has to keep their prices low. Because remember, it's all good and well to say, oh, it's just a two-day outage of electricity or two hours a day, but you still have to pay the labor for that time period. So your costs don't stop. Yes, you don't pay for the electricity that you don't use, but you've still got rent to pay. You've still got wages to pay, uh, all those sort of things. And then we've got the BE side of things. You know, I call it these days black economic impoverishment. Because if you look at the coal price that ESCOM pays to a few people, it's gone up radically 300% in the last 12 years or so. And 
yet everybody pays for that. The majority of people paying for that are black, African. So these sort of BEs is, is, is an elitist deal. And we've got to get a, a way around that because it's also seen as an extra tax by these companies. So they say, your company, your country charges me a tax and a tax on dividends. And then I have to give up a share of my company. Um, why would I want to be there? And nobody's talking about this. We're all skirting the issues and all trying to be politically correct. But we're killing the country with political correctness. That's my problem. You call the so industrial, there's my rant. You call the Industrial Policy Action Plan, IPAP, a burden on the industry. Why is that? Well, first of all, you know, they, 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 it's just great ideas that we come forward with and so on. But it hasn't worked. And the reason that it hasn't worked is that they didn't listen to industry. They, they've been working in their own silo. And they think by protecting the big boys, it's okay. They forget that the smaller companies that create more work and create value don't um, always want that um, industrial protection for, let's call it the dinosaurs. On the other side, we don't, we, we, we've given um, very big subsidies to the motor industry, which is great and egotistical, and we all pay more for our vehicles because of the tariff protection and the subsidies. Um, but ultimately, you know, where we need to create the work, say in the agricultural fields, and they compete, our agriculture is amazing. It competes uh, to a large extent with people with subsidies, and yet somehow agriculture has remained. But they've had to scale down on the number of people that they employ, both the farmers and the food uh, processors and the drink processors and the like. Um, our wine farms and our wine exports have done brilliantly. Um, and you can't just go anywhere with agriculture, but we've done very, very well. So I think we should have sort of looked at the subsidies of the food farms and that, because that's where our unemployment is, is in the rural areas. And those subsidies could have been uh, more legal than others, because a lot of companies support subsidies to the agriculture, and then they export their chickens to us, or they export uh, 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 their food to us, their butter, and we sit here and we take that, and it's cheap. But we destroy our own jobs that are already quite efficient sometimes. So I think we need to re-look and have an honest look. The other thing that iPad has always got a transformation agenda, and it's going to be an ownership change and a structural change, but these things are led from the top. They are not logical consequences of where the world is going and how we can help and tweak and so on. Governments should get out of the way, but there are things that government does. I mean, government creates education. They have created a lot more people with matric. I don't know about the quality, but let's say we want people not just with matric. We want people with accounting skills specifically or engineering skills or programming. Those are the tweaks that a government can do to help a, a country. Um, governments typically take care of education, even in, let's call it, largely free market countries. So we need government. We, we're not saying we don't want government, and this is just me speaking, but I want government to, to do the right thing. And they should be led to a large extent by the market. The market forces are changing uh, things. And it doesn't mean everybody needs to be a computer guy. In America, where's the shortage? And in Britain, on truck drivers on packers, on people that do merchandising on, on shelves, on home care providers. Um, that's, if you wish, uh, 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 the sort of hospice type uh, thing, because many people don't want to deal with that. And we, we find even things like personal shoppers, uh, motorbike drivers. Those are not necessarily high skill, but we can tie into that. And therefore, I think if we do the right things here, we, we, we can find the jobs here that we can create. We're trying to create jobs uh, for a population that we don't have. We, we, we must create jobs for the population that we do have and where that population is unemployed. That is very, very important. And uh, the, 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 the kickback is 
if we get this right um, and we uh, change our attitude as well, that's a other big, big thing. Uh, don't fight with business. Help business and, and come more to the side of business. Um, you, you're going to need a, a business to, to grow those jobs. And also the thinking of uh, these big companies when the average employer has nine people employed, the median is about seven. Um, so, you know, rather think in terms of small and how you can help small business. And that's not just paperwork. Sometimes it's, hey, can the guy sell his product on this road without the traffic police chasing him? Yes, safety reasons you want him five meters away from the tarmac. Um, but why can't he sell there? And, um, you know, let's make things happen. Yes, safety is important. Health is important. Those are the rules that you enforce. But all the rest are, are, are not always sane rules. So we must work out ways that people can do things without getting every license and having to bribe officials and things like that. So, yeah, I think we've got to really look at our economy and specifically uh, those things that give us things to sell and buy, the wine farms, the, the manufacturing, the, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of tourism areas. I, I think if I look at some of our beautiful places that we have, yes, COVID destroyed them. But, you know, no country has a Kruger Park like ours. No country has the sort of wildlife, maybe Kenya does, but we've got more capacity for tourists. Um, so we should be looking at how we can tie that in with maybe manufacturing around there, not just curio little things, but, you know, how can we trace the, the tourist and send him more South African wine after the fact? How do we trace a tourist and sell him biltong? And how do we get that biltong into some countries where it won't be allowed? At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. A report this week by Professor the Confederation of Employers in South Africa has warned that South Africa is flashing red for an Arab Spring phenomenon, similar to the uprising or revolution that led to regime changes across Northern Africa and the Middle East, and also led to the end of the regime of President Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. The study by advocate Hein van der Walt and Dr. Lawrence McChrystal draws stark parallels between the conditions that brought about the Arab Spring and those that are present currently in South Africa. Well, joining me to discuss it is Dr. Lawrence McChrystal from Kufesa. Hi, Doctor. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's a great joy to, to, to talk with you. Doctor, what are these conditions that you have pinpointed that make South Africa vulnerable to a similar event? Yes, it is essentially unemployment and uh, the idea that emerged from the Egyptian case and spread across the Arab world was that a 30% level of unemployment is a, a kind of a, a cliff. And if you go beyond that, you're going to start falling into the precipice. And we are way beyond that, in fact. Yeah, way we beyond. Are taking into account the people who have given up seeking jobs, we're at 44%, and in the age group below 35, we're at 64% unemployment. And that is just so unacceptable because these people are being deprived of an ability to stand on their own feet. And uh, to try and solve it by handouts is actually aggravating the problem because uh, handouts create a, 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 an attitude of dependency and an attitude of entitlement. And you add those two together, plus an attitude of hopelessness on the part of the young people, you've got a ready-made, it just needs one match to explode the thing. 
Well, talking about a match, you also talked about a possible revolution related to the postponement of the local government elections. What do you think are tipping points or events that could lead to that? Well, another another July, where, where people start saying, well, you know, I'm sick and tired of being hungry. I'm just going to go and take again. And uh, I think that that's the most likely one. So an event similar to the arrest of President Jacob Zuma? Well, it could be something like that, and they could attach it to that. But underlying it is the sense of hopelessness that I've, I've spoken about on the part of the young people. But in any event, uh, Linda, what we, what we must also bear in mind is that human beings need to feel that they are being productive. We have a need, an innate need for it. And uh, to sit around doing nothing all day long is... Uh, is is just not acceptable, and and especially if it's accompanied by hunger and the feeling that they can't feed their children. We have a project running all over Africa where we teach people to stand on their own feet. They start little businesses, and they talk to save their little bit, and they start growing food. I can't believe how it changes their attitudes. Um, Mothers say, wow, for the first time I feel like I can feed my children. For the first time, I don't sit around doing nothing all day long. For the first time, I feel like I am worth something. It's all those sort of things, you know, which uh, is undermining the very fabric of our society. So we say that a government that ignores unemployment levels like we've got is, um, is just looking for trouble. And people don't want handouts. Well, if they've got nothing else, they'd rather have handouts. But, you know, the, the tax base is diminishing. Uh, the government uh, finances are not in a good shape. And uh, where does this money come from? You can't go on and on and on taking from the people who are productive and giving to the people who are not productive. You've sent your report, I see, to the president. What is your advice for the government? Well, essentially... Focus on getting the economy moving. And there are some things that can be done very easily and very quickly. One of them is to deregulate small and medium enterprises. We in COFESA represent uh, a huge section of the small and medium enterprises in the country. Uh, We've lost thousands of companies lately in the last 10 years, literally thousands. And... uh, our manufacturing sector, which was one of the driving powers in our economy, it was uh, over a quarter of, of over 25 percent of the GDP, the gross domestic product, is now down to half of that. So, uh, number one is do away with the regulations that are uh, causing problems, and one of them is what are known as bargaining councils. The bargaining councils are representative of the trade unions and the and the corporates. They make decisions based on their negotiating. We in the, in the small and medium enterprises have no representation there. And then the Minister of Labor and Employment, uh, by the way, is the Minister of Employment too, but it's a real paradox. You can't be, you can't be one and uh, can't be both. Anyway, he has the right to enforce the decisions of the bargaining councils on the whole, on the whole sector. And uh, that is creating huge uh, problems for the small and medium enterprises because we cannot meet the the levels that they they negotiate. So we recommend to the government that, number one, they do what what Margaret Thatcher did way back in England when she did away with the bargaining councils and that they do what they did in New Zealand also to stop the trade unions imposing their will because they're a minority. The trade unions only represent a small minority of our workforce, and yet they are listened to and their wishes are, 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 are granted, and not the wishes of the unemployed. So there are two things they can do overnight. I tell you that will, and then deregulate the private sector, stop all these regulations. BEE uh, assists about 50,000 people compared with what have we got unemployed people 44% of our workforce is unemployed. Millions. Sorry, can you just go back to that 50,000? What do you mean by that? 
BEE is helping directly, effectively, helping about 50,000 people is our estimate. Uh, and they get all the benefits by, you know, the, um, the, the, they front for com- companies. I know fronting is supposed to be illegal, but it's not being enforced. There are all kinds of things like that happening. And the result of a lot of this BEE work is companies are closing down because they can't meet these, uh, these requirements. So there are two things. Then, then there's a third thing that they can do, and that is to um, give title to the properties that people are occupying. And that has a huge beneficial effect because people start taking interest in their properties. They start spending money on them, uh, which they don't want to do if it belongs to the government. And then the third thing that they must do is uh, stop this uh, uh, expropriation without compensation. All it's doing is it's chasing investment away. Who's going to invest in a country where the government has got a history of corruption and they're going to be given the power to expropriate land without compensation? What's to stop them from expropriating land and then using it for to their own advantage? South Africa is particularly proud of the fact that we have evolutionary change and it was peaceful. Isn't it dangerous to use the word revolution? Well, we hope that it's not going to happen. We're hoping that they're going to get the message and prevent it. Because evolutionary change, if you look back at at the 1980s uh, and all the things that were happening, we were really made for a, for a, a, a revolution. And yet we didn't have it. And that was because the the government of the day saw what needed to happen, and they did it. Common sense prevailed. Yes, yes, indeed. So that's what we need now. Is that what you're saying? That's what we need now, and and, and less of this in attitude of we we want to control everything. Government's got a history of taking control of things and then messing them up. Look at all the state-owned enterprises. Uh, ESCOM in its day was one of the most efficient power producers in the world. It's now one of the worst. So, you know, that's just one example. Our railways, our railways and our ports were highly efficient. Now look at them. They're struggling to keep up with, with what's going on. So, yes. You were actually calling for an African spring, but not what we mean by a revolution, like an African spring, a renewal. A renewal, a, re- a revival, yes. Yeah. A renewal and revival, that's right. That's what we're so, calling for. And we're saying that all the elements of getting, of bringing it about are there. They, they're self-evident. So, um, that's what we, that's what we believe. Just to get back to the number of small and medium um, businesses that fall under your umbrella. How has COVID affected businesses? Well, it varies from sector to sector, Linda. It's, um, some uh, sectors have been very badly hit. For example, the tourism sector has yeah. taken a very, a very heavy beating. And the redlining of South Africa by the British government has just exacerbated it. So that, that sector, uh, the, the um, manufacturing has taken a beating for a, a number of reasons under COVID, but also because of other factors, uh, not the least of which are the things that we've been talking about. Uh, then the other, the catering industry, of course, has also taken taken a beating. Uh, just to go back to manufacturing, yeah. Linda, if I may yeah. for a moment. Yes. Um, the decline in manufacturing could have been stopped, but they didn't do it. What What happened was that in the late eight, 1980s and early mm-hmm. 1990s, we had a scheme, a set of schemes to, to develop industry, promote industry. And the first one that we got running, and I was chairman of the Board of Trade at that time, the first one we got running was the motor industry. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is today, the motor industry has been hugely successful. Uh, so we had the similar thing prepared, or we were very busy preparing for the other, for other industries, but uh, the ANC government did away with all of those. And we say, go back to those and we could have a number of industries performing just as well as the motor industry and get our manufacturing sector up and running again. 
Well, apart from what you said, the warning lights that are flashing at the moment with regard to people being unhappy with large-scale unemployment, do you see any green shoots in the companies that you have under your umbrella? Yes. Uh, you know, the, the uh, reduction in the, well, the controls under COVID uh, have been diminished. And mm-hmm. so uh, that has helped a number of industries or a number of business sectors. And uh, they, they have uh, recovered well. But there are still um, uh, major problems because um, uh, of all the regulations that people have got to, got to deal with. Because this government has been passing regulation after regulation after regulation. And it makes it very difficult for people to... And another thing that's stopping people from investing is this potential uh, expropriation without compensation. Their timing couldn't have been worse, worse to come up with an idea like that. To summarize, so what you're telling the government is go for the low-hanging fruit to turn the situation around. If you don't, you're sitting with a very dangerous situation on your hands. Yes. And smell the coffee. Because if you don't, uh, which is what the NAT party did, they did smell the coffee when the 1980s eruptions took place. And that's when... Um, the party got rid of uh, P.W. Boerter and uh, brought F.W. de Kerkin. And he, he saw the writing on the wall. And he said, we've, we've got to, we can't go on like this. I'm, we are saying to Mr. Ramaphosa and his advisors, you can't go on like this either. Because if you go on like this, you're going to alienate a big part of the population. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Magnus Haystack, founder of Brentist Wealth Management, was one of the distinguished speakers at the Business Investment Conference last month. After his presentation, he sat down with Business founder Alec Hogg for a Q&A. Here's an excerpt of their conversation. As we said in the beginning, I've, I've known you for a long time, and you've always spoken truth to financial power. It's easy, in a way, to speak truth to political power because they, they, it's all about narrative in politics. In finance, it's not. In finance, it's about facts. It's about the, the reality that money does make the world go round. Where does this all come from? Are you... Just, just, have you ever thought about that and said, Jesus, why have I taken such a difficult road? I could have gone the path of least resistance and not caused so much antagonism in my life to get a, a guy like Theobald to, to have a go at you out of, well, uh, a, a very brief period in time. What's it in your background, in your history, that, that made you so bedonert? <laughs> Well, my clients like me, Alec. They, they're thanking me very much because predominantly, if you look at our company, which let's say we manage 20 billion rand, I would say 60 to 70 percent of the discretionary money is offshore. And our clients are extremely happy about that situation. No, but before, because today it's easy. Today, today you can look back. But when you began Brentus, when you were starting, you've always had this consistent line that uh, would seem a bit counterintuitive, going against the, the flow. Well, there was a teacher in my school, Albuquerque, who said, if you fall in the river, Magnus, we're going to look for you upstream. Uh, so maybe it's been there for a long time. And I kind of question, like you, I question a little bit deeper. And I think with our journalistic background, you know, 20 years in journalism, at a fairly high level, you go to World Bank seminars. I never cracked an invite for Davis like uh, someone here on my right-hand side. But uh, I went to many World Bank and IMF conferences, so from a very high level, you know, I kind of approached things, South Africa, etc., and uh, always, you know, kind of looked at the narrative, and especially in the, in the financial industry, it was also South Africa-focused, but when you look at the facts, they're not, they're not there. They, so you realize they're just doing a great sales job on, on, on their clients, and I, I just couldn't handle that. And the financial institutions themselves... That must have come at some cost, the criticism that, that you level at them. Uh, otherwise, everyone would be doing it. 
As I said, and I think you wrote in one of the articles uh, or mentioned it, that you know, in the early days when you were supporting the local guys and going out on platforms and telling invest in this fund, you were the hero. Golf days, lunches, long weekends, uh, even overseas trip, you were the guy who brought the business. So they looked after you and they gave you business. And, but in the end you realize if you start an independent company, you do not work for the big companies. You work for your clients. And you have to, in my view do it with some kind of integrity that at least when you say, I, want, I like that fund as opposed to that fund or that asset class, here's my research. I've done my homework. It's not sales talk. I mean, with all due respect to many, many financial advisors, and I know we have a couple in the audience and I don't know what their views are, but to a large extent it was all sales driven. Look at how well we have done. we number one quartile. And you go to investment seminars, I've always joked, I have never in my life met a fourth quartile fund manager. They just never put them on the podium. They always put the guys who are red hot at the moment and they go out and sell. That's their business and I understand it. But I come from a different perspective. I don't get paid by them. My company doesn't get paid by them. We get paid by our clients. Now that's an interesting business model, that, that incentive structure. Uh, because in, in South Africa, it used to be um, a percentage of what the client was paying that would be paid to the financial advisor. Why did you... Was it, was it legislated that you had to do that, fee-based only? You, you might recall in the early days when you had the um, life insurance industry dominating. Life insurance would pay you ma- massive commissions up front. So you, you give me some money, and based on the scale, you will be paid as an advisor up front for the work you're going to do for the next five years. But that money still came from the client. It was a loan created between the company and the client, and you pay it off over time. So there were massive incentives to sell, and it was extremely profitable, but it, it led to very bad outcomes for the clients. I mean, you sell a product and you walk away, you've got no more responsibility for that. The model changed. When I started my business, I was one of the first in companies to say, we're going to go on an asset management fee basis, we become partners with our clients, and we benefit when they benefit. And most of the, the IFAs or the top uh, IFAs have gone that model. So the insurance industry still works on big commissions, incentivize their guys, pay them a lot of money, and the outcomes, whether they're good or bad, is, 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 is irrelevant. And, and that, that model has changed worldwide. Magnus, I was really interested in, in, in the the journey that you were talking about for South Africans to invest abroad. We are both of an age where you literally could not take money offshore. It was not allowed. Certainly during the 85 uh, debt standstill, that, that was the last thing South Africa was allowing. And yet since 1998, this ANC government that has been given so much criticism here this morning has, has given us the freedom as South Africans to invest our money anywhere in the world. Are you fearful that that might at some point be taken away, given that sometimes governments change their minds. Yes, I am. I, I remember, it's not an abolishment of exchange control, it's a relaxation of exchange control. That law is still on the law books, and they can do it overnight. You don't have to go to Parliament, new law, and then vote on it. It's already there. They've made the... So I'm surprised that they've done it, and I don't think they've fully co- accepted or realised the consequences as that one chart I've shown, that a trillion rand has left the country, and I would imagine it's mainly the very high net with clients who've taken substantial amounts of money offshore, and, and anybody who had spare cash for sale of business. So that's in addition to the foreigners. So there are under, undertones in the ANC and their various uh, uh, spokesmen for the ANC, uh, Patrick, Professor Patrick Bond, for instance, every time he gets on a podium he's saying, that 10 million rand thing must be stopped. That's the whites all taking their money out. We need that money in South Africa. So it could come back overnight, depending who gains control in the ANC. So it is a reality that do not think it'll still be around three or five years from now. It might be, um, depending on what happens in South Africa in the next couple of years, it can be withdrawn over a weekend. Have you visited the Biz News Wine Shop yet? If not, go shopping immediately at www.biznewsshop.com for a selection of great wines at just the right price. Delivered straight to your door. T's and C's apply.
Well, that's it for tonight's episode of the Biz News Power Hour from me, Nadia Swat, and the rest of the Biz News team. Thank you for joining us. As it's Thursday, tomorrow is Carrie's Corner. We'll be back on Monday, same time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.